welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 7th July with me, Ian Welsh. Recently, I had a conversation with Matt Inbush, Senior Manager at the World Business Council for Sustainable Development, and Mike Nemeth, Senior Advisor for Agriculture and Environmental Sustainability at Fertiliser Business Nutrien. We talked about how nature's role in the global economy is increasingly being valued, and how companies in agricultural value chains can take a more nature-positive approach. First though, it's time for a quick roundup of some sustainable business news, this week with B. Stevenson. A new global energy monitor study has found that China's wind and solar power sectors are growing at a pace that would increase global capacity by 85% by 2025. The booming industries are exceeding previous expectations, as China is on track to surpass its 2030 green energy targets five years ahead of schedule. Subsidies and regulations requiring provinces to hit green energy targets have been a significant tool so far. Despite being the world's largest coal user, China is aiming to more than double its wind and solar capacity by 2025 through rapid expansion. This could have a significant impact on limiting global emissions in the years to come. However, the report notes that coal plant construction continues to rise, partially as a backup to new wind and solar farms. It also stresses that battery storage and hydrogen growth will also be crucial for China's successful transition away from coal. The world's average temperature has hit an alarming record high this week, surpassing 17 degrees Celsius for the first time. This milestone, attributed to the El Nino weather event and ongoing warming due to carbon emissions, marks the highest reading in recorded history since monitoring began in 1979. Concerns have grown as rising temperatures have been observed on land and at sea, leading to heat waves in Spain, Asia and the North Sea. China and parts of the southern US are also currently experiencing extreme heat. The global average temperature of 17.01 degrees Celsius on July 3rd breaks the previous record from 2016. June was confirmed as the hottest June globally, with temperatures 1.46 degrees Celsius above the 1850-1900 average. The impact of high temperatures extends to Antarctica, where a new temperature record of 8.7 degrees Celsius was recorded. With El Nino intensifying, more record-breaking temperatures are expected in the coming months. The UK government is reportedly planning to abandon the £11.6 billion climate and nature funding pledge for developing countries that it made at COP26 in 2021. A leaked briefing note suggests that meeting the global $100 billion per year commitment to developing nations would be a huge challenge due to new pressures including additional aid for Ukraine and debt relief. Government officials have calculated that allocating the necessary funds would require 83% of the Foreign Office's official development assistance budget, leaving limited room for other commitments such as humanitarian and women's programmes. The leaked information has provoked the outrage of former ministers and representatives of vulnerable countries, including small island states, who would have received some of the funding. Critics have noted that the UK's reputation as a reliable partner and a climate leader will be seriously undermined by this decision. UK supermarket M&S has launched an initiative offering families money off children's clothing when they donate used school uniforms. This is an extension of M&S's existing swapping partnership with Oxfam, in which customers swap old clothing for loyalty points and perks. The pre-loved school uniforms will be sold via high street Oxfam shops, as well as a new back-to-school eBay shop. The initiative is evidently a triple win in which funds are raised for Oxfam, money is saved by parents during the cost of living crisis, and the life cycles of articles of school uniform are extended. The initiative also highlights the opportunities for partnerships in scaling the circular economy. 
few days ago, I spoke with Matt in Bush from the World Business Council for Sustainable Development and Mike Nemeth from Nutrien about how agribusiness can take a more nature-positive approach and some of the emerging guidance that can help. We're going to be talking a bit about challenges and opportunities around developing nature-positive agriculture. Matt, do you think it's now generally accepted that nature underpins the global economy? I think it depends who you ask. On the one hand, it's really good news. There's a ton of momentum right now around this concept of nature positive that was really accelerated with the global biodiversity framework being agreed last year in Montreal at the COP15. So this is effectively the Paris moment for nature. And that's really set the global agenda for the first time with aggressive targets on you know everything from slashing pollution, conserving and restoring our ecosystems, corporate disclosures, mobilizing billions and financing. And so this is all really good news, and there's more and more attention every week, every month from the public sector and the private sector on all things nature. But I think the ultimate test is really how much and how fast we can mobilize. And the truth is we're still a long ways off from action at the scale that's needed to combat this nature crisis that we're, that we're in. I think climate still very much sort of dominates the space, but we need to approach it thoughtfully so we don't distract or compete amongst these issues, but recognize they're the same. They're inherently intertwined. You know, there's no such thing as a climate at all without the functioning ecosystem services, including the trees and vegetation that provide the oxygen that we breathe. So it's really a both and and, and not an either or question. Mike, how do you, far would you say that has accepted that nature does underpin the global economy? Well, I think it absolutely does. Nature is tied to everything that we do. And for Nutrien, as an example, it's important for our business directly because our business and our growers, customers, you know, the farmers that we serve are dependent on natural ecosystems, biodiversity and water. So nature within those ecosystems to be able to produce crops, to be able to produce the fertilizers that we need and be able to grow seeds for our seed business and be able to provide everything that's needed for a farm to function. Matt, what is the evidence that you're seeing for this? There's an often cited stat from the World Economic Forum from a couple of years ago that all business depends on nature, ecosystem services, like Mike mentioned, water provisioning, soil health, climate regulation. Um, and they pointed to over half the global GDP and $44 trillion being moderately to highly dependent on nature and its services. So that's pretty well established, I think, at this point. We've seen a lot of corporate action in this space, um, major alignment around the, the global goal for nature to halt and reverse nature loss by 2030, targets being set, really major lobbying efforts supporting things like the, the GBF and currently the EU nature restoration law, for example. Shout out to Business for Nature for doing a great job mobilizing private sector on those fronts. Our members we're seeing are super engaged on this topic. We had standing room only at our last annual meeting back in April in the in the nature session, and we agreed we need a bigger room for the nature topic next time. And so there's a lot of just a, a lot of activity in this space from the corporate side. The frameworks and standards are developing at a super fast pace. The TNFD, the Task Force for Nature-Related Financial Disclosures, following the TCFD approach in climate. Uh, the forum has over a thousand members. It's being tested by hundreds of institutions, including a lot of our members. That'll be out in September with its first recommendations, which is a big step. Similarly, SBTN, the Science-Based Targets for Nature, has just put out their land and freshwater first targets. They'll be validating with an initial group of corporates, and that'll be accelerating action in the same way we've seen on the net zero side of things for climate. And then in the regulatory space, the CSRD, the Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive in the, in the Eurozone, the ESRS standards around that are also moving very quickly and will be required for companies who operate there and are engaged in the Eurozone in the next couple of years. 
this is all moving really fast in these different realms, corporate frameworks and regulatory. There was this line from the European Central Bank earlier this month where they talked about this analysis and they said that something like over 70% of the companies in the Eurozone are highly dependent on at least one ecosystem service and that it has potential for real systemic disruption and that it's not a tree hugger issue, I think was the way it was phrased. This is hardcore economics. So I think all of those are really positive signs that this is moving in the right direction. I know that World Business Council, you are developing some roadmaps for companies that want to take a more nature positive approach. How have these been developed? This is kind of the cornerstone of our nature positive approach, working across sectors on these nature positive roadmaps. And the concept here is to outline how businesses across core economic sectors, including agri-food, can put themselves on a nature positive path in line with the GBF and linked closely with the global imperatives that we focus on also around climate and equity. And so this agri-food roadmap to Nature Positive will provide how-to guidance for companies to assess and disclose their material risks and opportunities. So that's aligned very well with the TNFD, the disclosure space, and prepare to set science-based targets for nature aligned with SBTN, like I mentioned. This roadmap is designed for use along the full agri-food value chain. So from input providers like Nutrien to agri-producers to the traders and manufacturers and retailers down the value chain. Um, and also across all the stages of the nature positive corporate maturity journey. So whether you're at the leading edge or you're just starting out or like most companies, you're somewhere in between, we want to meet you where you're at and provide guidance to advance the journey. And we're working with a diverse group of companies in the agri-food sector, gathering expert input from the conservation community and, and other key stakeholders, developing this approach that's both scientifically rigorous and practical for business implementation. You mentioned GBF just now. Can you just remind us what GBF stands for? That's the global biodiversity framework. So like I said, this is the Paris moment for nature. This is the overarching framework that jurisdictional governments and corporations and other stakeholders are aligning around. There's a set of targets that are basically providing the roadmap for the world to halt and reverse nature loss and restore nature in the next coming decades. What are the key things that companies need to take account when thinking about how to launch such an approach? I think the main thing is to get started and recognizing that everything we just mentioned, the space is evolving at light speed. No one has this all figured out yet. Nature is kind of everything, so it's completely overwhelming in a lot of ways. But we know there are things that corporates need to do now to halt and reverse nature loss this decade, aligned with the GBF targets. In the roadmap, the key questions that we're exploring are around a few key themes of so scoping. As a company, where do I focus? When I look at my value chain, I look at my global operations and sourcing and sales. Where should I focus my efforts to have the maximum positive impact on nature and biodiversity? Materiality. So once I know where to focus, what do I look at? What are the key nature-related dependencies? So ecosystem services that we rely on and the impacts that we have. Building from there into risks and opportunities. Why does all this matter for my business and my stakeholders? And to what degree? What are sort of the magnitude and likelihood consideration around these issues? And then ultimately, what are the priority actions I should be taking as a company, collectively with other stakeholders? And importantly, what are the barriers and trade-offs to consider as we chart that path forward? Recognizing nature impacts and dependencies, this is highly local stuff, which makes it different from climate, which is a much more global question. And we have to approach it that way with the local lens. And so we've undertaken these, what we're calling deep dives into productive landscapes around the world. These are high priority landscapes from a biodiversity standpoint to explore nature pressures, practices, resources, and sort of the remaining challenges. And that's looking at soy production in the Sahado region of Brazil, the savanna um, corn production in the upper Midwest in the US where, where I'm from, and rice production in the Mekong Delta in, in Vietnam. 
not intending to capture everything in the world, but to illustrate a portfolio approach that a global company might take with a nature-focused approach, narrowing down to its highest priority commodities and then regions of operations or sourcing or influence in whatever way they're tied to those landscapes. What are the lessons learned then through the roadmap development process? And do you have any case studies you can share? I think the big theme is that agriculture is a system, nature is a system. And so if we're going to move these systems forward in a more positive direction, it really requires a systemic approach and all hands on deck across the spheres of the private sector, public sector, academia, conservation, everybody kind of rowing in the same direction in a very much faster than we're rowing today. And at the center of that need to be the producers, the growers, right? As Mike mentioned at the top, wherever a company sits in this value chain, all signs really point to the growers who are on the front lines of these nature-related pressures and, and opportunities as well. And so we really have to prioritize their realities, their needs, and really seriously engage them in these developing solutions. Thinking about the business strategy and market development side of things, there's a few things that jump out from our research. There's one quote that I really liked from a lifelong corn farmer in Minnesota, who's also a biodiversity expert. And he said very simply, if we build the markets, farmers will plant them, them being the cover crops and the rotational crops that are needed as part of a regenerative system to replenish the soil and retain moisture in the soil and reduce our carbon footprint and all these benefits that we want to see. It's on the big food companies to develop these markets in non-traditional ways to really drive the incentives back to the farm level. Another example is from Brazil and the Cerrado. Our platform that we host called the Soft Commodities Forum has a new multi-million dollar fund that's growing and looking to grow in the coming years called the Farmer First Clusters, which is incentivizing soy growers away from deforestation and conversion practices and a more nature positive approach to soy growing through a bunch of different levers. But the big one is cash. I mean, literally putting cash in the hands of growers who are taking nature positive approaches. One other finding is that in landscapes where smallholder producers are the dominant production system, and this is the case in Vietnam and the Mekong Delta for rice, getting this balance right between nature and climate and farmer livelihoods is really critical because it's a question of daily subsistence. Through all these landscapes and these examples, we're looking to highlight not just the leading practices of corporates, although there are a lot of good things we can show, but also the challenges and the unresolved questions because we don't have all the answers. But part of what we want to do here is really elevate the challenges, align around the key barriers, and then build from there towards the solutions that we need to see. Mike, let me bring you in. From the perspective of a fertilizer business, what do you see as the potential for a more nature-positive agricultural sector? Well, as the world's largest provider of crop inputs and services, fertilizer being a part of that, the focus is efficiently serving the needs of the growers. Like, like Matt said, if we put the growers of the producers at the beginning and the forefront, that's how we can actually do this. Because at the end of the day, our business relies on sustainable, meaning social, environmental, and economical farms. So if we have farms that are misbalanced, farming is a business. And so we have to make sure that we're working with the businesses all across the value chain to be able to make sure that we're on a nature positive pathway. So I see the biggest potential for a more nature positive ag sector is really by supporting on-farm management practices, sometimes referred to as regenerative or sustainable practices, but really they need to be grounded in good agronomy and good science. So things such as nutrient stewardship, whether that's for our nutrient stewardship in North America or ERT care in Australia, every kind of jurisdiction has their own, but really it's looking at putting nutrients in the right place at the right time, uh, at the right rate, and in the right place so the plants can get them and they stay in the field. Precision agriculture with technology and products, 
integrated pest management, land management practices, such as planting forages on marginal lands, planting of cover crops or windbreaks, and efficient water use. So all of these kinds of things really help make farms both profitable and productive and also resilient, and they support nature-positive outcomes. It's a good point that change needs to be economically viable. What are you doing to work with your customers to achieve this change, but in a way that is economically viable, particularly long-term? We can really help do this through nutrients retail operations. We offer farmers everything they need to grow a crop, so including a range of seed, liquid and dry fertilizer products, crop protection products, specialty nutrition products and biologicals, as well as a range of other services and solutions, including precision agriculture. So what we need to do is work with the farmers to make sure that it works for their business. Because whether it's on the manufacturing side, the fertilizer side of our business, if we take something that's supposed to be nature positive and we bring it to the business and it doesn't work for the business, then it's not going to be a sustainable solution. We have to be able to offer services for growers in regions that make sense for them. In some regions, it's not possible or practical to plant a cover crop. It's not economical to do so. But in other regions, it is. And so focus on the situations that are unique and local to each region and put those into context so that we can work with the farms, with the value chains in those regions to address and identify not just the challenges, but the opportunities in each region. What are the opportunities from the use of digital technology and new innovation in that area? A lot of it's going to be around measuring and understanding what's already being done. If you have a practice change, what is the impact and then what's the valuation on that? If we kind of understand a baseline and where things are at now and where the opportunity lies, whether that's in soil carbon sequestration or building of soil health through organic matter or increasing soil moisture holding capacity, whatever that local opportunity is, being able to measure that quickly and efficiently through digital technologies, whether that's LIDAR or remote sensing of some kind, and then just being able to measure, track, and monitor those in an efficient manner so it's not burdensome at the farm level, but that it can be rolled up and provide the data and evidence that the value chain needs to be able to track, monitor, and value those outcomes. Thinking at the farm level then, what are the key challenges that you find when you're working with your grower customers and what are you doing to overcome them? Well, one of the challenges for us as a value chain member, uh, before we get to the growers, that nutrient is upstream of the agri-food sector. So we provide inputs and services for farm customers, whereas a grain trader or a textile and food and beverage company or a biofuels company, anybody sourcing anything off agricultural lands, they're downstream of the farm level. But current global guidance and frameworks, whether it's SBTN, the Science-Based Target Network, or TNFD that Matt mentioned, there's no specific guidance on how to approach nature downstream. Or if you're talking in greenhouse gas emissions language, kind of scope three nature. But we need an approach for nature action with a focus on sector-based goals that can really help with a shared nature-positive goal by 2030. So we feel that the opportunity is by taking a regional and systems approach with all willing partners in a region. So if you look at a watershed, for example, and you look at true collective action in a watershed, I think that the challenge is really how do you bring those people together to be able to mitigate impacts, restore nature, where it's needed, how it's needed, and move the needle locally. 
So there's a great opportunity to be able to do that through the Nature Positive Ag Roadmap that we've been working on with WBCSD and other member companies. But individual companies and financial institutions, we need to adopt strategies across all of our spheres of control and influence along the value chain and beyond. But it's understanding how we do that is kind of the key challenge right now because the guidance really isn't there. You've been working on the roadmap with Matt and his colleagues and others. What do you want these roadmaps to address ultimately? I would love for the roadmaps to be able to address the barriers for entry for some companies, things such as worries on their actions not being seen as credible or being seen as maybe greenwashing through their efforts or concerns that companies are behind and don't know where to start. As Matt said, there's a lot going on out there, a lot coming at us. The last thing that a company wants to do is act and then be criticized for it. So I think there's lots of desire for companies to be able to meaningfully engage and act. And so I really hope that the roadmaps can help overcome some of those barriers for entry for some companies. And I think having a roadmap and understanding where companies can start and how to create meaningful regional collective action with local impact is what I hope the roadmaps can help address. Matt, the roadmaps are in development, as we said. What's the timeline to their full introduction? We'll publish initial foundational content guidance in September at New York Climate Week. And this will be alongside partners from the World Economic Forum and Business for Nature, who are also developing sector-specific guidance around Nature Positive, and those will all sort of sit together as a package. As for ours at WBCSD and the sectors we're focused on, which are agri-food, the forest sector, energy systems, and the built environment, these will all initially be reports, you know, PDFs on the website. But the idea by next year is to really turn these into more action-ready tools that can actually walk a user through the journey. And this will complement the great resources already out there from TNFD and others. We want to be complementary there and not duplicative, and that's a big theme for us. So that's phase one. And then phase two will go into 2024 and we'll really go deeper into metrics and indicators, which is a big elephant in the room in some ways, especially around regenerative agriculture. And so we're going to take a deep dive there, align with our internal work stream around regenerative ag metrics, which is an exciting opportunity, engaging lots of members and organizations focused on that. We might also look at other deep dives. So like I mentioned, we've done these three landscapes illustrating the commodity row crop piece. And there's obviously lots of other illustrative examples we could look at to round out the case studies on different crop cycles um, and also different regions of the world in terms of high priority for nature and biodiversity. Great that you're going to be complementary to other initiatives. There's often a bit of a danger of initiative overload. It's great that you guys are all working together to try and make this as useful as possible to the sector. Matt, what is success going to look like for this project? I think it starts with having a great product to begin with. And so taking into account a lot of what we've discussed and a lot of what Mike just mentioned in terms of usability, I think we're on the right track with our corporate members actively engaged like Nutrien and many others, and also gathering the really critical input from the wider civil sector and conservation community and academia and others. And then it's about making this real and encouraging and supporting uptake across companies, both our members and others, to get the scale that we need. So getting it out in all the right places, encouraging feedback and taking that feedback on board and really iterating our approach as we go forward, like you said, to complement and clarify the evolving space as it continues to move very quickly. And then ultimately, it's about whether these roadmaps can help accelerate collective action to halt and reverse nature loss and set us on a path towards nature recovery by 2050. So this is one piece that we think can really help move the needle from the corporate side on those critical questions.
an ambitious goals for sure and it's going to be great to hear how it all develops but for now for Matt Inbush from World Business Council Sustainable Development and Mike Nemeth from Nutrien thank you very much indeed thanks Ian thank you the Innovation Forum website is, as ever, the place to go for all the usual analysis and interviews. Continuing our nature and food supply theme, among the content published in the past week is the recording of a webinar we held a few days ago where we asked some farmers what they need for a fair transition to regenerative agriculture. Worth a listen if you're not able to join in person. We'll be back on Monday with our regular weekly briefing, but that's it for now. I've been Ian Welsh, and until next time, goodbye.